0: So, this little tiny letter, Jude, or in Greek, Judas, J-U-D-A-S, is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. If you were raised Roman Catholic, as was I, uh, you might have been taught there were no other siblings. It was just Jesus, and that was done. Uh, scripture doesn't seem to hold that view. Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, both talk about the brothers of Jesus. So after Jesus is born, there's no reason to doubt the text that he had other, uh, Mary and Joseph had other children. And as we've often sort of joked, it would be a real bummer to be a half-brother of Jesus, right? I mean, here's the straight-A firstborn, ultimately compliant person. But um, at any event, there is an insight we don't have that growing up around that certainly impacted this particular letter, Judas. Uh, This little letter starts out as a letter about salvation, but it makes an abrupt change. And it's an interesting letter. I would paint the picture as, I want to talk to you about this salvation, but there's something more urgent. Stop, time out, hold the presses. There's something more urgent than salvation? Yes. And the false teaching and the corruption that's infiltrating these churches, you need to be aware of it. And there could not be a more timely message than this little letter for us today. As I've said so many times, you should probably know it by heart, we're never making the Bible relevant. The Scripture is relevant. The challenge for us is to understand the context in which it was written and how we understand and apply it today. But the scripture is always relevant for all time. Nothing new under the sun. So we envision a longer letter that becomes sort of a, got to get this one out. i got to fire off this email and get it out because this is too important and these issues are too big for me to write a longer book about Verse three is often seen as a key or the key verse. You know, I caution you to, uh, you know, I, I like the idea of a key verse, a key theme, a key passage, the main purpose. But I always want to write that in pencil. Uh, it's it's always this is the whole counsel of God. This is the Word of God, and to say one part is the best or the key, you understand my hesitation, maybe a little bit overcompensating, but I want to be cautious. But verse three uh, is certainly one that seems to encapsulate what Jude is writing about. The major theme I would suggest from Jude is about those who deny Christ. I wanted to talk about salvation, but I need to talk to you about those who are denying Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 3 in Jude, beloved. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. See the logic there? I was going to write about our common salvation, but there's something a little more important I want you to hear. Not more important than the gospel, not more important than salvation, but I was going to write about this at length, but because of what's going on, you see, it's irrelevant. What's going on, we need to discuss that, and you need to understand that as leaders of Christ's church and there's a progression in this verse that is wonderful and again for you BSF precept community Bible study folks that have Bible study you're nerds like me Um, this progression I want to talk about our common salvation I needed to write to you something else contend earnestly for the faith and then he talks about it was once handed down to you um Verse 4 explains this contending for the faith. What is he talking about? Contend for the faith. It's a present threat. And he says in verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. See the certain persons and ungodly persons. is parallel. We have some uncomfortable language here. Let me speak a little bit about Wilkinson and Boa and then I'll come back to this verse. They write at length, I've given you a truncated view of this, the epistle is intensely concerned with the threat of heretical teachers in the church and the believer's response to the threat. The contents reveal two major purposes. Number one, to condemn the practices of ungodly libertines who were infesting, great word, infesting the church and corrupting believers, and two, to counsel readers to stand firm, to grow in the faith, to contend for the truth. So, these two issues are clear, they're easy to see, it doesn't take a lot of careful study to notice it. I mentioned in 2 Peter that Jude and 2 Peter are very hard letters. They're very uh, uncomfortable in the nomenclature of our culture. It's love and tolerance and kindness and embracing and accepting. And you have to put that on pause for a while when you read these two very brief letters. And one of the differentiations you have to come to is do I trust God at his word or the culture at their word? Do I trust the scripture or do I trust what the culture is teaching about all these different ideas. Um, we are watering down the Gospel, we are watering down the Bible, we are accused of all manner of things as Christians. And Christians are funny, when we are accused of something we run and hide. We don't stand, it's not we have to be pugilists and fight back, but there is something about taking a step forward and saying, let's talk about this. I don't agree. Your opinion is important. Does my opinion count? Can we have a conversation about this? That's not easy because most of us grew up in a culture where we weren't challenged, we weren't threatened, we weren't accused, we weren't maligned, and now it's quite the opposite. And it was true for the, uh, the readers of this little letter uh, to Jude. Christians today, um, I don't mean to be unkind, but most churches, I think most is, is fair, are derelict in teaching the Bible. We're talking about isms and ologies and trends and all kinds of wonderful topics that have places to discuss. No doubt about it. But the average American Christian who goes to church once a week probably has one time that week opened their Bible for 30, 45 minutes sitting in a local church. Most never look at it during the week. Sure, there are examples where this isn't. Sure, people are involved and engaged in the Scripture in other ways. But in the main, we have lost so much of our importance to looking at the Scripture, trusting God at His Word. And Jude is writing about this. Verse 4 is chilling, but it's clear. These certain persons, the ungodly persons, they're marked out for this condemnation. And if you know anything about the doctrines of predestination, of free will, of election, of double predestination, all these things, chosen people, you you know all of a sudden the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up metaphorically. I find it remarkable in all the years I've been trying to teach Scripture how many people are so opposed to the doctrines of election and predestination. And I've tried to teach over the years that our view of these things is, has to be calibrated. We're finite creatures looking at the infinite plan of God. We have a thimble of knowledge against the oceans of God's knowledge. And we're looking at it from one little tiny perspective. And uh, I won't go down this road. I've explained it so many times before. But what he is saying here is these people, I, I learned some positive things here. Don't be surprised. They're always here. He doesn't say get rid of them, He doesn't say kill them, He doesn't say squash them. He says be aware that they are among you, and you have to contend for the faith. Um, We have to have courage, we need to speak truth, we don't want to be hateful, we don't want to be nasty, we don't want to be reduced to the same kind of arguments that are thrown our way. I was sharing with, I think I shared with you before, and I was sharing with some friends in recent days. I never talked much about spiritual warfare in the 40 years of teaching the Bible uh, because I lived under this idea that if you give Satan attention in any way, shape, or form, he can always use it for his advantage. Novel, but that's the way I look at it. There is a place to study Satanology and demonology and so forth, but I've never been a spiritual warfare guy and look under every bush for spiritual warfare. Um, So, take that as a preface for what I'm going to say. Spiritual warfare in my life today, of what's going on in our country is uh, head and shoulders above anything I've ever seen. Had I lived in the Civil War, had I lived in World War II, maybe we would have some comparisons, but we're in a interesting time and place, but the Christian should not live in fear. The Christian should not worry about such things. Be aware of them. Jews going to say, contend for the faith. And that's what we want to look at. They're ungodly. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness and they deny Jesus. This is a punch. He's saying, don't be surprised at what they're doing. Watch what they're doing. And when they turn the grace of God into licentiousness and they deny Christ, there's a progression here, again, that he writes so succinctly about. So how do we deny Christ? innumerable ways. And that's one of the challenges. I don't want to be cavalier. I don't want to be um, knee-jerk or unkind. But I'm I'm going to go back to the things I've said again and again and again and again. When you water down the person and work of Jesus Christ, you're in dangerous territory. When you minimize what he has done, when you minimize who he is, the eternal king of the universe, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all that we see, he's always been, he always will be. When you nuance that, when you change what he said, that's denying the Savior. Never say about Jesus what he did not say about himself. You're always going to do well. We, we joke about the red letter versions of the Bible. Any of you have a red letter Bible? I, I kind of like it, you know, see where Jesus is speaking. Sometimes the narrative for an English reader, is hard to know what's going on. So I like when I see the red letter. Maybe you don't. So, well, the whole Bible is a red letter. Yeah, I get it. But uh, I like reading those red letters because it focuses my attention. This is what he's saying. I should pay attention to it. And when he says things like, I only do that which pleases the Father, I always do the will of my Father. Remove this cup from me, not my will, but thy will be done. You have this perfectly submissive God-man. Don't tamper with what he says. Don't change what he says. The framework of your understanding and mine begins on this salvation post. We've talked about this again and again and again. I'll talk about it again and again and again. To understand the life, death, burial, to confirm He was dead, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the core of the Gospel. You must needs comprehend this. This is the whole transaction of our New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15 you can read what Paul says about this Gospel. If this isn't true we're not just... You know, misinformed, we're liars. We're false prophets. If he did not live, die, was buried to confirm his death, raised from the dead, overcoming death, granting eternal life to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. I plead with you. I beg you. I implore you, if you don't know Christ, to come to Christ. There is no downside. There's no loss to think I don't get to do certain things if I believe this. is just, it's confusion and lying and it's deception. What you gain eclipses anything you think you're going to lose. And you need to know that you, know that you 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 know who this Christ is and are you rightly related to him. That's the framework. That's the foundation. Now, as believers understand this, now we're going to live a certain way. And this is where we see the Christian life in all sorts of flavors and colors. And so we, we manage it. We, we say, this is what sanctification is. This is what the disciple are supposed to look like. Uh, I just simply say, are you growing? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you in the Word? Are you convicted of your sins? If you, Alexander White said, the close, rough paraphrase, the closer I walk to Christ, the more of my sin I see. Anyone say amen to that? The closer I walk to Christ, the more of my sin I see. That's a good thing. If you're walking close to, he doesn't say just stop sinning. Okay, I'll stop sinning. Those of us who tried to diet, or do keto, or paleo, or paleo-keto, or whatever. You know, whatever you're going to do, eat, eat clover. I mean, whatever you're going to do, there'll be a new diet. We're eating weeds right now, you know that. This whole quinoa thing is just eating weeds, but God bless you. Have your floss handy. Uh, all these things we do to try to measure, and yet we can't stay with them. Very few can. Some are ultra-disciplined, and they're just bad people. And they put themselves on Instagram and say, you could look like me. No, you can't. Next page. Turn the page. Quit scrolling. Get rid of it. I did something this week. Uh, I have to be in in transparency. I didn't do it because I was godly. I was looking on my phone, and I found this thing talk about battery use in an article I read in a tech journal. And it said, uh, there's a way to look at your battery consumption in your phones. 47% of my phone battery was Instagram. You know what I did? Uninstalled Instagram. It was the last piece of social media on my phone or tablet. I have it on my desktop just so I can check the in-context stuff. I'm just done. I'm just done. It doesn't change anybody's mind. It just makes people upset and mad. And I probably just made you mad talking about it. <laughs> and my wife says, well, I like to look pictures of the grandchildren. So do I. But it's a sinkhole. It's a it's a bottomless pit when I get on that dumb thing. And I thought, this is telling me forty-seven percent of my battery life I have wasted looking and it wasn't all my grandchildren, I have to be transparent. It was a lot of others to, oh, and I'm reading things hard to agree with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Helps a lot. This helps a lot. Changes the world. (laughs) How do you grow? You and I've come to Christ, we've walked the aisle, we've prayed the prayer, we perhaps were baptized, whatever thing you want to put in that tank of I know that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. How do you now live? And how do you grow? And this shouldn't be impossible. If the Spirit of God indwelled you in me at the moment of our salvation, we are empowered by the very person of the Godhead, three, to help us be transformed to be more in the image of Jesus Christ, less in the image of our sinful self. Jude's going to give some very simple examples about godless individuals. And this is so, it's so wonderful, but let, let me give you the high view here. He's going to talk about denying Jesus as our Master and Lord and it comes down to either rejecting or submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a theological proposition that no one's ever going to shed a tear over. You can read those, verse, th- those things, yeah, that's true, I agree with that. I don't want to deny Jesus as my Master and Lord, and I certainly want to submit to the authority. Jude's laying a foundation here in this short letter saying, this is the issue. Do you submit to Him or not? Do you reject his authority? So when someone says, you know, I I know the Bible says this, but I know God's loving and he'll forgive me. That's licentiousness. I I know I shouldn't do this, but the Lord will forgive me. That's abuse. I, I know, you know, I don't really believe those parts where Paul talks about, you know, Sex is confined to a heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage. Uh, That's wrong. That was culturally contextualized, and I don't agree with that. See, we're not submitting to the Word. We're not submitting to the author of the Word. We're submitting to the culture. We're rejecting. And that is the fulcrum. That's the watershed, maybe a better word. Denying Jesus takes a lot of forms, and Jude's going to give, first of all, three examples. And they were so easy for the reader to understand, it'll take us a little bit of homework. The rebelling Israelites, the rebelling angels, and the rebelling licentious people. So these are the three reference points. He's going to say, look at these three things to illustrate, to explain my point. When Israel rebelled, when the angels rebelled, and when people chose a licentious lifestyle. Verse 8, yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, And reject authority and revile angelic majesties. He goes on to use some interesting language, like unreasoning animals. He uses, like, they're like hidden reefs. They're dangerous. You can't see them in the water. Um, They're like clouds without water. We, uh, Sydney, I spent a lot of our life in Texas. We have many friends in Texas. And I don't know what it is about. When we, as, as, we talk about the weather all the time. I mean, how's the weather? And we, we can talk about it for 15 minutes. I have a friend that lives in New Braunfels, and he is obsessed with weather and the aquifer and how much water is in the aquifer outside of New Braunfels. And they don't know, but they, they worry about it. Can't water your yard, can't wash your car, because we have enough rain. And then the clouds, the clouds, and they never yielded a drop of rain. And they get all lathered up about it. And I go, move to Tennessee. What are you worried about this for? I came across, some of you might remember, there was an old NPR, um, Ken, my mind. This is dangerous when you speak off script. Uh, He was the NPR guy that did these stories. And he went back in time and looked at letters written in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, correspondence. And they all talked about the weather. But that was a letter that took a month or two months to get somewhere. And they were talking about crops and rain, and we worry about these things. Um, A cloud without water, it's a pretense, but it's a fraud. Jude says, watch out for unreasoning animals. Watch out for hidden reefs. Watch out for clouds that don't have the promise of raining. And so he uses Israelites, the angels, and these people. Then he turns up the, the knot, so to speak, to give them very clear references And there are three of them that they would know backwards and forward Cain, who murdered his brother in Genesis 4, Balaam, who prophesies against God in Numbers 22 through 24, and Korah, who opposes Moses, who is God's servant in Numbers chapter 16. The consequence of false teaching is not a slap on the wrist, it's not, well, you don't believe that, that's okay, we can still be friends. The consequence of false teaching is swift. It is clear. It is strong. In each of those three examples, Cain is marked. He's sent out. He's a stubborn, willful man. You have the story of Balaam, which, a prophet who speaks not for God. And Korah, if you don't remember the story, a chilling story, where basically the ground opens up and swallows this whole tribe. Because they shook their fist at Moses who was literally shaking their fist at God. He's my chosen servant. By the way, again, just most of you know this, but Moses is is, quote revered. He's that works carefully, not worshipped, but he's respected. He's looked up to because he was the one God gave the law to. He was the one who went to the Mount, Mount Sinai or Sinai, some pronounce it these days, and he was given these tablets. I argue it was a copy. It wasn't one to five and six to ten. It was one to ten and one to ten. And one tablet was put in the ark and one tablet was for use. And of course you know the story, he breaks the tablets in anger and God carves them again for him. Moses was revered by Jew and Christian alike because no one had the relationship with God like Moses, his chosen servant. And you remember his story in the beginning. He's like, oh, I don't know who you are. Send somebody else. I've never been any good at speaking. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful exchange of a reluctant guy. Rightfully so, I would argue. <laughs> I don't think he was being obstinate. He was afraid. You're going to go tell Pharaoh, what? Who do, I, who do I say? Who are you? And then he gives him this cryptic name. Tell him I am sent you. That's going to play real well, God. <laughs> Uh, and, and then all that has to go through, all the plagues he has to go through, the people rebelling three days into the wilderness. This guy had a hard row to hoe. And he dies not seeing the promise because of his sin. Nevertheless, they understood these examples. They understood Cain, they understood Balaam, and they understood Korah and how they revered Moses. And the sidebar for this is I was reading and rereading those stories and backstories of those three characters that Jude illustrates with I wish we knew our history as well as people in the New Testament knew theirs. I wish we knew our history of America far more of Scripture. I'm reading a set of books right now by one of my professors, Dr. John Hannett. it's a two-volume set, a little academic, a little, a little deep, some of us are in a reading group on Monday. And we read through this and it's fun to read it with smarter people than me. And we sit around for an hour and Webex and talk about it. And um, John Hanna has taken 67 years of teaching historical theology and put it in two volumes. And he used pictures and color, it was nice. And um, it's a fascinating look and I'm reading, I read his introduction of 73 pages three times now because I'm really trying to understand, okay, Dr. Hanna, how do you do history? Because your children in high school or junior high or middle school, whatever, I, I would suspect they're reading a lot of revisionist history. I suspect a lot of things that were once important 10, 20, 30 years ago may not even be in your textbook. So I'm on this history thing right now. How many of us had a, just, just, we're friends, right? We're friends. Had a really terrible history teacher sometime in your education. Oh, come on, put it up really high. I can't see real well. So 30 percent of you how many are a great, phenomenal history teacher? God bless God for that. Uh, Dr. Hannah uses the un, un, it's a common, but not necessarily flattering illustration of you know I said, Dr. Hannah, why do people not like history?" He said they had a coach who taught them. <laughs> I did. I did. I love my coach. He had the history textbook. He opened it up, and he read part of it. It was beyond boring. It was terrible. And then I had a history teacher. I sat on the edge of my seat, Dr. Calvin Hines at Stephen F. Austin State University. I couldn't wait to go to class. I couldn't wait to tell him. And, and the, the line I came up with is to understand history is to understand the current event of another time. And we all like current events. We all like what's in the news. So when you think about history, what's in the news? These. New Testament Christians, let's call them that, they knew their history. Jude didn't have to explain Korah, he didn't have to explain uh, Balaam, he didn't have to explain Cain. They knew those stories backwards and forwards. And I make you a commitment as long as Stonebridge is here, we will teach your children the Bible. Christy will do what she does up here which I think is a delightful thing. We stumbled across it and let's do it in the service and it's become part of our fabric And what they do in the back and the curriculum, Maddie writes, and the women and men back there that own this. You know, your your kids are coming, sorry for live stream folks here, but your kids are coming to a warehouse, which concerns me a little bit. But when they walk in here and they hear Christy talk about the Bible, and they go back there and they got men and women who sit on the floor and tell them these stories. We will always do that, God willing. Because they need to know, not a revisionist version, they need to know what the history of the Bible is. Okay, all that's for free. I'm sorry. Let's look at some lessons. And these are all taken right out of the, the verses of Jude. I didn't have to rephrase any of these, five of them. Number one, remember what was spoken by the Apostles about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 17 and following, you can see all these in your Bible. Remember what was spoken. Remember a couple of weeks ago in First John, I... I pondered the question with you, why does he say that you, you have fellowship with us, the apostles, so that, or and, have fellowship with God? Why didn't he say have fellowship with God and us? Which is a head-scratcher, because this thing you call the New Testament, the corpus of literature, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, through Revelation, that body of literature is what God told these authors, these men, to write And they tell us about the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Master and Lord. So if you don't accept that, you can't have fellowship. That's what he's saying. Jude says the same thing here. Remember what was spoken by the apostles. Um, Again, I implore you, I implore you, I implore you, keep your nose in the book. Not because you have to, because you get to. Not because you should, but because you can Your day will not be any less effective by time spent in the Word. I can't prove it. I I wouldn't even try to test it, but I would argue. Time in the Word in the morning makes your day more efficient, more calibrated, more focused, more in tune. And I would suggest you're going to worry less about life. Because you're grounded before you begin this crazy world in which we live. You're reminded God has spoken, and it's true, and it hasn't changed, and I can trust it. I implore you, get a good Bible. You can take notes in and color and connect the dots. Secondly, mockers will come. Expect them. Don't be surprised when it happens. They're motivated by, Jude says, ungodly lusts. They cause division. They're worldly-minded. They're not of the Spirit of God. Why are we surprised? Why are you surprised when they hate Christians? Why are you surprised when they want to gut any mention of God out of a school or a textbook or a school board meeting? Mockers will come. Probably the the greater concern is if it's going to happen, are you ready for it? And this is what Jude is saying. I was going to talk to you about salvation. I need to talk to you about contending for the faith. I need to talk to you about staying in the game. I need to talk to you about being strong in the midst of these things. Mockers are going to come. Third, build yourself up, verse 20. It's an interesting phrase. It's, uh, I won't bore you with the grammar, but he's essentially saying you have to do this on your own. No one else can make you a disciple. Now we can help one another, but no one can make you a disciple. I was 28 or 29. Cindy and I had finished grad school. Um, We were involved in a little church in Grand Prairie, Texas, between Dallas and Fort Worth, a little suburb. And uh, I became the senior pastor there at 28, 29 years old. Uh, I thought I knew how to teach the Bible. I didn't, but I thought I did. And all the men on this elder (coughs) board were old enough, most of them, to be my father. And we had one little baby girl who was six months old. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I'm out there preaching my heart out. And uh, I learned pretty quickly I didn't know anything about leadership. So what do you do if you don't know about something? Well, what I did was start reading books. I've got over 150 books on leadership in my library. And that's not a badge. That's just because I'm a slow learner. And I'm reading, 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 and I'm starting to find trends. By the way, if you study, those of you who are still in school or grad school or going to college, you know you're getting close when you're studying the literature and you start hearing the same themes again and again and again. That's when your research is almost done. Okay, these are the big trends. And then I started following other leaders. I started chasing men in my worldview. I was a pastor. So I started going after other pastors who were older than me. And I'm not saying just successful with big, big churches or whatever, but men who were faithful, who were teaching the Bible, who had been in the game a while, and I start chasing these men. What do you do? How do you lead? You talk to 15 pastors about how to lead, you're going to get 25 different opinions. So you have to figure out what leadership is. The big aha for me about two years into this study, which provoked me to do my third terminal degree, was, Michael, no one's going to make you a leader but you. Now, I should have learned that the first pamphlet I picked up, right? But I didn't, because I am a slow learner. The one thing I have in my favor is even though I'm a plotter, when I get it, I tend to get it. I tend to retain it. Cindy made all A's in college, the same courses I made B's and C's. She remembers none of it, I remember most of it. We often joke about this. My oldest daughter is the same way. She can test and make A's till the cows come home, but they don't remember anything. They look good on paper, I look good in print. So go figure out, you know. <laughs> We're just different people. But it dawned on me you got skills, you got abilities, you got talents, you can learn new things. You have to measure it somehow. So how do you measure leadership? Well, we won't go down this road, but my point simply is I had to learn to be a leader. No one was going to make me a leader, and that sounds arrogant to say I learned to be a leader. No, it was fear. It was driven by I don't know how to lead. And I discovered, as many of you have already discovered in your life and career, leadership is in great demand in every sector of life. The person that will put him or herself out just a little bit more, will read a little bit more, will be prepared for the meeting, will come a little early, will stay a little late, will deal with the problem person or persons a little bit more often. They, they emerge very quickly, and all of a sudden they find themselves chairman of the nonprofit board. And they go, what was I thinking? Well, that's a different question. How much more when it comes to your spiritual life? You have to, forgive me, make yourself a disciple. Now, of course, you don't do that absent the God, God's word or absent God's spirit or absent God's people. But do you hear what I'm saying? You have to decide, I am going to do this thing. I'm not going to sit back and, uh, we're friends, right? How much time do you waste looking at something to watch on Netflix versus watching something on Netflix? You know they've got an algorithm out now that you can put all your personal information in and it will tell you what to watch? That's terrifying to think of what they're doing with your information. No one is going to make you watch a show you don't want to watch. No one's going to make you open this book. Talk talked to a dear, dear friend of mine who just took his, his daughter off to a job in New York and his son off to the Naval Academy. And we were talking about, he goes, yeah, I was in the car and I was, you know, the last thing you're going to tell your son or daughter. And I'm just biting my tongue going, been there, done that, done work. You know, it's, you know, but we try. And uh, we were just talking about encouragement, 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 encouragement. They already know what you believe. Those of us who have older kids, they already know what you think. Frank, those of you got, you know, I love all the little kids in our church. You, yeah. young, you young parents, you're tw- sitting I talk about this quite often. You're, the way you're parenting makes the way we parenting. We, we were terrible parents. We were the worst parents ever on the planet. It's amazing our children survived. You're exceptional parents. When these kids answer questions that Christy poses them, I'm half laughing and half crying. When a kid can articulate, they want to be. What, was it a radiologist or whatever? I mean, they're probably in a medical home. Give them that, right? But the fact that they know that word. In fact, did you hear the definitions of doubt this morning? I don't think adults could come up with as good as some of those answers, as succinctly, as crisp and accurate about what doubt is. So as a parent, you're you're working, you're, you're reading, you're indoctrinating, you're doing everything you can to get them to stay on track. But you know, metaphorically and literally, when you give them the keys to the car, they're free agents in every respect. And they're going to go off to school and college and so forth and so on, and they get to make their own decisions. Too many come home, and they decided differently than you raised them. Then you get to figure out how to navigate those waters. I tell parents all the time, your children are free agents. Your children are free agents. Do not own this. Yes, we all are terrible, horrible, sinful, selfish parents. We've all made mistakes. We've all yelled at our kids. We've all lectured our children. We've been derelict in certain times. We've all failed as parents. Get over it. Turn the page. Tell the child you're a sinful, flawed person. Well, I knew that, Dad. (laughs) Big surprise. But when you plead with them, when you pray for them, when you tell them, I just want you to love Christ. I just want you to run hard after the Savior. And they may go to a different church than you want them to go to. They may not go to church. We keep praying. But they're a free agent and they stand before God on their own two feet. Here's the point of all this. They know. Because you taught them. Whether they Embrace it all, own it all, believe it all. That's up to them and God, between, the, between them and God. Jude says, build yourself up. Make yourself a disciple. You young men and women, this is formidable time. You live in a very interesting time. I'm not worried about it. I don't like a lot of what I see. But Jesus says something about worry doesn't add to my life. So I'm going to take that by faith. And... Be the, be the young man on campus, the young woman on campus that says, hey, let's start a group and let's read, let's read uh, one page of the Bible every Wednesday night and talk about it. You might be shocked who'd show up. Let's read a little book. I found this book at, you know, RUF or crew, crew or whatever. Let's read this book and argue about it. That's all leadership involves. Let's do this. Let's try this. And you know what? Not everybody follows. That's Okay. That's okay. But you taking the initiative to develop yourself as a mature. This is what Jude's saying. Build yourself up. And as I've asked you and myself many times, am I any more like Jesus Christ than when I came to faith in Jesus Christ? And the more meddlesome question, am I any more like Jesus than I was a year ago today? Sober. Four, pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, depending again on our backgrounds, that may mean different things to different people. I don't think there's any merit at all to say this is speaking about tongues, because what he says in the context. But to understand the Holy Spirit, and we've talked about this before, Ephesians 5.18 is a verse that I would write in your margin, maybe memorize, that we are to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying there is don't use an external substance like wine. Consume it to excess where now the wine controls you. Don't be filled with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, Wasn't original with me. Someone said, we don't need more of God. He needs more of us. I kind of like it, but I don't for obvious reasons. But I'm submitting to the Spirit's control. So when you're tempted, when you're in trouble, and you say, God, I need your Holy Spirit to help me. Jesus, I need the Spirit of Christ to help me because I'm going to do this sin. I'm going to make a bad decision. I'm going to do something my parents trained me not to do. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway because I can pull out First John 1 and 9 and get out of jail free. And I need to pray in the Spirit. It's not emptying your mind. It's not sitting in the lotus position. It's not humming. It's looking at it. Listen, we, we struggle with prayer. We started Stonebridge. We, have, we want to give everyone who comes here regularly the Handbook to Prayer by Boa, Ken Boa. It's not the only thing to do, it's a wonderful thing to do. It'll get you in a rhythm. It delighted my heart. I saw something on social media, uh, and this young lady had a picture of her desk. And she had her handbook to prayer on her desk. I don't even care if she used it. It just made me feel good. <laughs> She's got the book. You can do that book for 90 days. It will help you. There's another book that you don't have to go buy. It's called the Psalms. Start reading psalm a day. And read it like a prayer. I don't understand them all. Read another one. That one doesn't make sense, Michael. Read another one. There's 150 to choose. They cover most of our problems, learning how to pray. Five, keep yourself in the love of God. Interesting passage. John 15, 10, Jesus taught, if you keep my commandments and abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, I have to remind myself often that God loves me. Some of us are critical of ourselves. We're critical natured people. We don't look in the mirror and think we're great. We look in the mirror and see everything wrong. Why would anybody love me? Why would God love me? This is is reprogramming. This is recalibrating. This is reframing. Christ loves you. He died for you. He doesn't know... He he, he knows everything about you. There's nothing you've experienced, temptation, sin, frustration, loss, desperation, broken heart, nothing you've experienced He doesn't know about. And He still loves you. He loves you when you sin, He loves you when you repent. It will never stop. Part of the reason I think glory, and we'll look at Revelation, is going to be such an overwhelming, otherworldly, incomprehensible to explain on the earth, when we cross that threshold from this life to the next, we're going to be so blown away by the love of Christ, we're going to fall on our faces. I've, I've joked that when you see Christ face to face, you're going to fall on the ground and he's going to pick you up and he's going to walk. The next person is going to fall on the ground he's going to pick him up. So the first millennial, Jesus is just picking us up. Because we're just falling on our face. We don't know what to say or do. I can't believe you love me and not fall on my face and worship you. Because there's nothing else you're going to do when you see him. There's nothing else you will do when you see him. I love Revelation when John writes, I fell on my face like a dead man. You're in the presence of God. And he loves you. He loves you. Lastly, waiting anxiously, verse 21. Interesting phrase. Um, Perhaps another way to render it in English would be to live expectantly, waiting anxiously. Um, One of the things that we we struggle with is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It may be morning, it may be noon, it may be evening, it may be soon, He's coming again. Some of you know that hymn. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's okay. I always want to roller skate when I hear that song. Anyway. Doesn't it sound like a skating song? Eh, Anyway, Uh, he's coming again. Um, The doctrine of eminency is a hard doctrine because how do you live every day like he might come today? I don't. I don't. If you do, great. I'm glad for you. I don't. I live a lot of horizontal energy, (laughs) hoping he'll come tomorrow. When we were single men in college, there was this bachelor to the rapture nonsense going around. I don't want to be a bachelor of the rapture. I don't want to be married before the rapture. We have this idea he's going to come back, but, you know, one of the things that helped me recalibrate is not to look at the event of his return. That's where I have made the mistake. The event when he comes back. Jude says, waiting. So the idea is I live in a posture of he's going to return. What does that look like practically? And this helps me a lot. It's not just an event. It's I remind myself He's king, He's eternal, He's real, He's sovereign. What happens today does not change the sovereign's agenda. And reading these books on history, one of the things that has encouraged me and blown me away in some respects and discouraged me is no empire lasts all kings die, all monarchs fail, all governments fail. The great experiment is a wonderful thing. It may not last forever, but when I look at the reality, he's eternal, he's loving, he's kind, he's patient, he wants none to perish, no, not one. He does not delight in the death of the ungodly. I review who he is in his character, and I go, this is the man, quote unquote, the person, the God I am waiting for. And that reframes it a little bit to not think about, is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to come today? I posted an article this week that was taken from um, Desiring God. It was an article written by Johnny Erickson Tata for Desiring God, and it stopped me in my tracks, and it perfectly illustrates what jude is saying here listen to johnny for those of you who don't know this is her 54th year it's a quadriplegia in a wheelchair and she has uh, endured more than most of us will ever understand cancer and quadriplegia and all the complications and she is a delightful person who loves the lord loves kent and a remarkable ministry On the morning of my wedding, my helpers laid me on a couch in the church's bridal salon to dress me in my gown. They heaved and shifted my paralyzed body this way and that, trying to fit me into it. But when I sat back in my wheelchair, I groaned in the mirror. I looked like a float in the Rose Parade. Right before I wheeled up the aisle, my bouquet slipped off my lap That's when I spotted the greasy tire mark on my hem. My chair was spiffed up, but it was still big, a clunky thing with belts and ball bearings. It was not the picture-perfect bride. Then I caught a glimpse of Ken. He was craning his neck, looking for me. My face grew hot. My heart began to pound. Suddenly, my wheelchair, and my clumpy dress with its smudges faded away. I'd seen my beloved, and how I looked no longer mattered. I couldn't wait to get to the front to be with him. I may have felt unlovely, but the love in Ken's face washed it away. I was the pure and perfect bride. That's what he saw, and that's what changed me. Our first glimpse of our Savior may well be like this moment. Just one look from Jesus will completely transform it. And it's why everything in me cries, come Lord Jesus I long to be free from the stain of sin. And why wouldn't I? Jesus gave himself up for me that he might present the church to himself and splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless when he has given me a head start for although my suffering has often felt overwhelming and when I saw myself in that mirror it was it was God's choicest tool in making me holy my affection keeps purging sin and selfishness out of my heart honing me into the picture perfect bride Heaven is the holy habitation where I will be presented to Jesus spotless and blameless. And my suffering is helping with that. That one's hard to choke down. Some don't quite believe me, she continues. They think I want Jesus to come back so I can jump out of my wheelchair and walk again. Although at one time that was true. Decades of leaning on Jesus and my suffering have driven my longings for heaven deeper. A glorified body will be nice, but I want a pure heart. I want to be whole.